Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. passages versus other passages that he talked about money. And, and this is what Jesus said. Part is, I think that it's important that Jesus knew that for many of us, money would be the number one competitor for our lives. And so there's also a second reason that I believe that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about anything else. And that's because I think that he also knew that money more than anything would be the number one cause of stress in our life. And I think that that's something that all of us can relate to, that money just causes us to worry and to fret and to stress about things. And I think he knew that. Um, and so what we did was we found some very practical um, principles out of the book of Proverbs that we talked about last week. Things about like uh, budgeting and saving money and eliminating the weight of debt so that we can come out from a place of stress and worry and instead find freedom from those things. And so today as we wrap up our series, I want to share the one practice that the Bible instructs us to do that if we get it, it can change our lives. It has more opportunity to influence our personal finances more and to transform us form us from a place of worry and from stress and anxiety than any other financial principle that we could apply to our lives. And so I want to start with a question, and that would be this. What would it feel like to completely trust God with our finances? What would it feel like to completely trust God with our finances. I mean, what would, it, what would that feel like? How would it impact the quality of your life if you could totally trust God with your money? Maybe I can ask it this way, change it around a little bit. How much time do you spend worrying about your money? How much sleep do you lose because you're worrying about your money? Or maybe I could say it this way. How many relationships have been damaged or strained because of the strain that was put on the relationship because of financial pressure? What would it feel like to be free from all of that? What would it be free? What would it be like and to totally trust God with your money? Well, today, I want to have a discussion or a conversation about a not-so-ancient idea, and I believe is going to help us get to that place. If you guys would go with me to the last book in the Old Testament, uh, it was written by a prophet by the name of Malachi. Malachi, if you guys want to open the last book of the, of the Old Testament. And we have Bibles here for you. They are completely free. We have them down on the front as well as at our Connection Center. If you don't have a Bible, this is the lifeblood of our faith, right? So get one of these Bibles. They're completely free. And also we have these little companion books called Learning to Follow Jesus. If your relationship with God feels uh, stale, this is an opportunity for you to kind of kickstart it. It's seven-day guide to beginning your journey with Jesus. So, um, we're going to read a passage from Malachi chapter 3, and let me just say this first. Uh, some of you are really familiar with this passage of Scripture, and, uh, and, you're, and, and some pastors really love this. This is like their favorite passage to talk about, right? Um, they love to quote it. They love to teach it. And, uh, and for some of you, um, you are kind of turned off about what we're about to turn off, talk about because you have become from manipulative environments where maybe you have heard churches or pastors talk about this passage of Scripture, and they ram it down your throat or they put push it in your face, and they have talked about it in a way that is unhealthy, and so you're kind of already feeling like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? And if you're a guest here today, this is your first time with us, listen, this is, this is just who we are. We talk about God's Word, and we try to take it at face value, so any given Sunday, you're going to hear about something from God's Word, and sometimes it's like a punch in the face, and other times it feels like, you know, like you're dancing with a partner, but it's all good stuff, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but here's the thing. So let me tell you why we're not going to read this passage, okay, because I think this is important for people to understand. Number one, we are not talking about money today because our church is going broke, 
All right, this is not why we're talking about this topic. Our church is actually very healthy financially. We're in a strong place. We pay our bills. Uh, we serve our city. We are sending money out to church planting and to global missions around the world. We are a healthy church financially. So the reason we're talking about money is not because we're going broke. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, we're not talking about money today because we're going to take an extra offering. That's the other fear that people oftentimes have when you start talking about money is, oh, they're priming me for something now, and that's not the case either. Because at Encounter Church, every Sunday we have a giving moment at the end of our service, and that is just normal for us. Why? Because we want to partner with what God is doing to accomplish his dreams so that the world will know him. And so we're not talking about money so that we can get more money from you. What we're saying is, is that's what we see at the end of our service. That's normal. It's an act of worship. But we're not asking for anything else. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we don't expect you to give anything. I just want you to know that. Or maybe you're coming from a place where you're like in a tough spot about this and you don't like what we're talking about. I want you to know that we think that this service is a gift to you. If you're new here, we're just offering this to you today to say thank you for being here. And that's really all this is about. But here's why. We're talking about money today. It's because more than anything else in our lives, I think our money indicates whether God is first in our lives or not. I think that's really the biggest thing. More than anything else in our lives, money indicates whether or not God is first in our lives. So this passage that we're about to talk about and that we're going to read comes from a very simple idea, the kind of the, the piece of it. And it is this, is that the first part of anything is often the most important part or the part that matters the most. Let me say that again that the first part of anything is often the part that matters the most. And it's framed, the passage is framed around this, this one powerful principle, and that's our big idea of the day. We're going to start with this idea that everything gears around. If you're taking notes, write this down. It is this, give God what's first, and he will bless what's left. This is a principle that we see all throughout Scripture, and we're going to unpack that today. And this passage of Scripture is going to talk about it, right? Give God what's first, and then he will bless what's left. So let's get started in Malachi chapter 3. And while you're finding it, a little bit of background. Malachi was a prophet, and that word kind of freaks people out. But in the Old Testament, think of it this way. Prophets were hammer droppers, all right? They would come in to a place where most often, um, you know, people were far from God. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And God sends a prophet, usually to a king, somebody in charge, and then he does this body slam of truth from God, and it just like knocks people to their senses, okay? That's the idea of a prophet in the Old Testament. And this passage that we're going to read here is one of those body slam truth moments from God. The book was written 400 years before Jesus was born, and it's fascinating because the entire book is written as a conversation between God and his people, and yet God never actually gives his people a chance to respond because he talks in sort of in this way that when he gets to the response of the people, he says, this is what you're going to say because I already know what you're going to say. And so you're going to see in a minute, there's this body slam moment, but every now and again, I believe that every one of us needs one of those moments, okay? I need them in my life sometimes, and if you don't believe me, just hang on tight because here's what Malachi writes about this conversation. Malachi chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 6 and go to 10, but we'll take it piece by piece. Verse 6 says this, I am the Lord, and I do not change. And that is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. So God starts off by saying, I am God, 
and I don't change. He's saying that I'm not up one day, I'm not down the next, okay? You can always count on who he is. He's consistent. He's, he's going to be the same all the time. And then he says that we're not destroyed. The reason you're not destroyed, the reason that you are still here, that your enemies haven't consumed you. Have you ever felt like that in your life? Like, I don't understand how I'm still here. My life has gotten real rough at times. I don't know how I made it through, right? What God is saying here is that if you want to know why you still exist and you have not been destroyed by your enemies, it's not because you're good, it's because I'm good. Because as God, I am good, and I promised I would protect you, and I will keep that promise. And ultimately, the pain that we experience in, in life, and as we'll see in our finances, the pain that we experience so often doesn't come because of God. It really comes because we wander from him, and we go outside of his statutes for us, and we ultimately forget who God is and that he doesn't change. For example, oftentimes we forget that God is either a provider or he's not a provider at all. Sometimes we forget things like that God is either for our protection or he's not for our protection at all. Like he's not either or, he's not up and down. God is one or he's not, okay? That's who he says, I am your provider. I am your protector. But the oftentimes the problem is that we forget those things. We kind of feel like, well, maybe he is today, but maybe he's not tomorrow. None of us actually say that right? But that's kind of how we behave. We forget that. And most of the pain, most of the trouble we deal with in our lives, and including our finances, come from a place of when we forget that God is sovereign, that God is faithful, that God is our protector, and he never changes from that position. So God kicks off this conversation with his people, and he says to them, I am your God. I don't change. And the reason you're still here today is because I made a promise to your ancestor, Abraham, hundreds of years ago that I would protect you and I will provide for you and I will be faithful to you and I will do just that because I don't change my mind. Verse 7, he says, Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and you have failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, this is one of those moments where he says, but you ask. He's telling, they're responding, but this is, he knows what they're going to say. How can we return when we have never gone away? I would say this to you. If you're feeling distant from God, it's not because he's gone anywhere. It's because you have wandered away from the things, from the place of where he is. It's because we have wandered away from him. He gives his commandments and we often refuse to keep them. So here's where the conversation kicks in. God says, return to me, come back. And I love this about God is that he's always calling us home. No matter whether we make silly, dumb decisions on a daily basis or it's been a long time since I've been to church or you've never heard the name of Jesus before and today's your first time, he is always welcoming you home. I love that about God. Return to me, come back. But then he knows what we're going to say. When we ask this question, we're like, well, God, how can we come back when we have never gone away? Like, we're so ignorant, right? And here's what they're saying. They're thinking, well, we're still Jewish. We still go to temple, right? We still do the things that you told us to do. We haven't served other religions, right? And in our terms, we think, I still go to church. Like, I'm still nice all the time or most of the time to people, right? What do you mean we're supposed to return to you? And here's what God says. Verse 8, should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. What? I'm sorry, God. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you, God? And then God says, you have cheated me of the tithes and the offerings that are due to me. Now, 
there is a very important principle tucked into this passage of Scripture. And if we miss it, we will miss almost everything that the Bible has to say about our finances. And I want to unpack this, okay? God says, you have been cheating me. You have been robbing me. Now, in the original language, cheating, robbing has the imagery of pillaging someone. Like rushing in and stealing whatever you want without regard. It has the, the idea of defrauding someone. Let me try to explain that with, with an illustration. Back in the mid-80s, there was a prominent televangelist, a Christian televangelist by the name of Jim Baker. Anybody ever heard of Jim Baker? So Jim Baker was the president or was the, uh, the leader of, a, of an organization called a Christian Broadcasting Network called PTL Network, okay? And ultimately, he was sentenced to eight years. It started with 45 years, and they reduced it to eight years of prison for accounting fraud. And the reason for that was is, is that he, uh, the, the network was broadcasting Christian television programming for 24 hours a day. It was incredibly successful. They even built a theme park. Can you believe that? A Christian theme park with like water slides and pools and hotels and everything in South Carolina. It was very successful. And all along the time during this, while it was rising to success, more people heard the name of Jesus via the TV access or interactive vacation environments. It was a very creative outlet for the gospel. It was very cool, right, in its, in its time. It was very neat in the sense of it had never been done before, that Christianity wasn't being broadcast on a mass media. But during that time, as it was rising, Jim Baker was going through several fundraising campaigns, and people were giving to it. They were saying, yes, I believe in the mission of PTL. I want more people to hear Jesus. That's cool that I can turn the TV on on a Sunday morning who doesn't go to church, and they may see somebody talking about Jesus. Like, that was a cool, novel concept. And so people were like, yes, I want to give to that, right? The problem was on the back end, Jim Baker was taking some of that money and he was holding millions of dollars for himself. And later on in the end, we found out that that happened. That's why he ended up going to prison for eight years. Now, here's the problem. It wasn't that, it wasn't that the ministry itself was a problem. It's that the guy who was supposed to be managing the money skimmed off the top and took it for himself, right? Jim Baker was not the owner of the money that was given to the organization. He was simply a money manager. And so this is what God is saying to his people. That's what you've been doing that to me. That's what God is saying to his people in Malachi chapter 3 is you're taking off the top something that doesn't even belong to you. Now, I think that the only way for us to really make sense of this and for us to understand this passage is to understand what the Bible teaches about our relationship with money. All throughout Scripture, we see this trend throughout Scripture, and we have gotten away from this as Americans, and here's what I mean. And this, I want you to understand that this worldview that we're about to talk about is the worldview of Christians for centuries, for the last 2,000 years. It has been the same idea, and it's only until the last 100 or 200 years that we have gotten away from this idea. This is what we have to understand about what Scripture says about our relationship to money. The Bible does not teach ownership. It teaches stewardship. The Bible does not teach ownership of money. It teaches the stewardship of it. Here's what I mean. You and I, we don't own anything. We own nothing. Everything that we have comes from the hand of God. That's what scripture teaches. And this is really hard for us as Americans because we like to think that everything that we have comes from our hard work. That I pull myself up by my bootstraps and I have given everything that I have to get what I have, right? We like that idea, but let me, let me counter that for a bit. If you or I were born on a mountain in Mongolia, there is no way you or I scrape together $30,000 no matter how hard we work, right? 
It has nothing to do with how much I work. Now, hard work is a godly principle, absolutely. I am not in any way saying that we should be lazy bums, right? But what we're, what we're trying to say is that so much of what we have is based on the circumstances that we were born into, based around the abilities that we naturally have or we have learned, and about the opportunities that we have been presented with. Does that make sense? So much of what we have come from our circumstances, our abilities, and our opportunities. And we believe that Scripture teaches that our circumstances, our abilities, and our opportunities are gifts from God. We don't own anything. We have only been called to be stewards of those things. Whatever we have ultimately is not ours, it's God's. I recognize that this is like a hard concept, but this is what Scripture teaches to us. That we are given things to be used for our pleasure, but also for his purposes. And at times, he asks us to give them away. That means that you and I relate to our money not as owners, but as money managers, as brokers, right? How many of you uh, have, ever, have ever hired a, uh, a money manager or a financial planner? Maybe a few of us. Imagine for a second that you hired a money manager... And you gave him your money to manage it, to put it in investment funds, and to take care of your budget and all those types of things. And then all of a sudden you found out that that guy was taking some of the money and funding his own kids' college educations. How would you feel about that? I would be furious and I'd probably file a lawsuit that the guy stole my money, right? I would fire him. That's not money management, that's fraud, okay? And that's what God is saying is happening here in Malachi 3, that God's people are his money managers and they've been skimming off the top and they've been keeping it for themselves. Now, if you're new to this concept, I want you to think about it. This is actually the most freeing thing financially. In our American minds, we tend to think that that's like, that's awful, but it's not. Because what happens is if I realize that I don't own anything and it's just my job to manage it according to God's principles and it's his job to provide, the pressure is no longer on my shoulders. I know that at any given moment when things look hairy, it's not my job to figure it out, that he will figure it out. And that's a, a rewrite of the coding in our brains, and I completely understand that. But unfortunately, like Jim Baker, we often forget this principle. We forget that, and we think that what we have is because we earned it, and we end up carrying unnecessary pressure, and then we either get greedy or we get worried, and we start skimming off the top and keeping it for ourselves. And when we do, we assume the role of provider, which is not our job. And from that place, we end up feeling the weight of anxiety and fear and stress. And it's because we were never meant to bear that burden. And so God says, here's the problem. You're cheating me. Why? You're robbing me of tithes and offerings. You're cheating me by holding back what was never yours to begin with. You're cheating me by holding back what is rightfully mine. That's what God is saying. Now, I know that this is very intense. I know that this is intense, but there is no way around this. This is what the scripture says. And if this is a new concept for you, you're probably thinking, my God, where did I come to? Uh, this sounds really radical. sounds really crazy. But maybe I would just say this to you. Maybe it's time for you to try something a little bit radical with your finances so that you can experience something radical in your heart. And what I mean by that, I know it sounds like a cliche, but you know what I hear all the time as a pastor is people who come to me and they say, I just... I just don't feel like I experience God the way you talk. And I say, and I, and I have seen people say it's because we often don't give him the area that we'll experience him the most. I believe this with all my heart. I believe this with all my heart. The day that I gave my control of my finances over to God, the day I experienced the freedom I could never have experienced anywhere else. And I, that's just me being blunt with you. And I think that people all the time go around 
and I think that they complain about how they don't know God or how they don't feel like they experience him, and it's probably because they only let him into the easy, safe parts of their heart. When you give him the places that are the, the most challenging, the most controversial, the most, the most uh, countercultural places in our lives, that's when we really, truly experience the Jesus that we see in Scripture. I would just challenge you with that today. But let's talk about this word tithe, because this is the thing I think that hangs up most people here. The word tithe in, is a very specific word that simply means 10%. It means a tenth, right? It's very specific in Scripture. It's not 7%. It's not 13%. It's 10%. And specifically in Scripture, it's not just 10%. It's actually the first 10%. That's why it says first fruits, right? It says those types of things. Now, this is the Old Testament, and this is where most people, probably several of you in the room here, and, and inevitably everybody kind of asks this question. Anytime we read anything in the Old Testament, people then go, well, is this really relevant to me today? Especially after Jesus, right? This is where most of our heads go when I read something in the Old Testament. And I think that's a great question. So we have kind of a litmus test to help us understand whether what we read in the Old Testament should or should not apply to us today, okay? So here are three things in the Old Testament that I think are going to help us understand. The first is this. It's called a ceremonial law. So most of the Old Testament is law, and there's the rules that we see, right? So ceremonial laws are religious, symbolic laws that had a purpose in their culture but don't really have an application to us today. An example is that there's a passage of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament talked about how you're not supposed to wear clothes that are mixed with, like, wool and linen together, you know, like, so polyester, okay? I think every one of us today are going to be stoned if we were still hanging on to that one. That's a ceremonial law, which was a symbolic act for that time but doesn't have relevance to us today, okay? Number two are civic laws. You have to understand that at the time in the Old Testament, most of what we see there, a lot of what we see is that God was their king. The people of Israel were in a theocracy. God was their king, so his laws applied to them because those people were looking up to him as their leader as far as their, their laws and their government. We have a government that sets laws for us. So most of those civic laws that were of the time, we we're in a different kingdom. They don't apply to us. Number three, moral laws. These are wise principles that do still apply to us today. Here's what I mean. Now, based on human nature, if we practice these moral laws, they will bring us blessing. Okay, that's the idea. But if we choose to ignore them, then we'll pay the price. So, for example, in the New Testament, God never actually says don't murder someone. Right? How do we know that we shouldn't murder? Because in the Old Testament, it says do not murder, and then God assumed that that one would stick all the way through the New Testament. That's the idea. That's a moral law. So we've got ceremonial laws that were applicable at the time but are not any longer because they, are, they were symbolic acts. We have the civic laws that were laws for that particular kingdom but don't apply because we have our own government. And then we have moral laws that stick because if we apply the principle, it will bless us. If we don't, we pay the price for, for ignoring that, okay? So here's the question. Which one does this fall under, under in tithes and offerings? And there could be some debate here, but I think that Scripture teaches that it is number three. It is immoral law. And there are clues to this. The first clue is in the beginning of the conversation. God says, I am God, and I don't change. God is saying this isn't just a symbol, right? He literally started talking about this topic by saying, I don't change. Okay, so that's a clue right there. And actually, what's interesting is that it's not just for cultural time. It actually started hundreds of years before the law even was codified. I don't know if you knew this, but Abraham, 
Abraham actually tithed a tenth of everything that he owned to the priest Melchizedek, the priest of Salem. And then it was codified in law in Leviticus. And then later on, it was here, it was validated by Malachi. And then 400 years later, there's a passage of scripture where Jesus actually validates tithing. Now check this out, right? Luke chapter 11, verse 42. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? This is Jesus, our Lord and Savior, talking now. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. You see, Jesus said you should tithe, but don't neglect the heart of it. And I love this perspective is that tithing is not the end goal. It is not the point of it all. The point is to live a generous life. The point is love and justice and taking care of each other and providing and being a partner with God and what he has called us to in this world. Jesus validates something that the Jewish people have been doing for centuries and centuries, and then he disciples his own people to do the same thing. And now we know Jesus' disciples tithed. How do we know that? Because of the writings of the early church fathers, who interestingly enough were discipled by the guys who were discipled by Jesus. So tithing is not a new concept, and it goes all the way up until modern-day America Christianity comes in, and we start thinking, I kind of like my own money, right? That's, that's kind of the shift that is taking place here. It is just something that never went away and was always assumed and was always practiced as biblical as a baseline for generous giving and generous living. So God is calling his people back to this. And Malachi is hosting this conversation, and it's getting really intense. And it builds up right here to this body slam moment, okay? Buckle up. Verse 9. He says, you are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Boom! There's the body slam right there. That word hurts us, curse. There's really no way to soften this. Okay, like, and you guys are sitting here thinking, I, 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 I might, might, might just get up and leave right now, right? That's what some of you might be thinking, and just hang on, okay? It gets better. What is God saying? Is this relevant to me today? And if, if it applies to us, okay, here, here's the thing. If this is relevant to us today, and if this still applies to us, this is a big deal because God is telling his people that you're under a curse because you are taking something that is not yours, and you're using it for your own gain instead of giving me back what is rightfully mine. We're skimming off the top. And we have to understand here that God is not saying that he is cursing us. He is not cursing. He is not the deliverer or the source of the curse. The fact is that scripture points that we are already living under a curse. You see, God is not some wizard. He's not some warlock who's sitting there just blasting lightning bolts down at people. That's not who he is. In fact, our God is a provider. He's a loving God who wants to take care of us, and his posture never changes from that space. But the reality is that we live in a world where sin reigns and dominates, and the curse of the fall of man is something that we are not protected from if we step outside of the umbrella of God's favor and blessing in our lives. We talk about that all the time here. When I choose to live under God's principles that I see in Scripture, I'm walking under as if it was an umbrella of his favor and protection and blessing. I'm stepping inside the citadel of his kingdom, okay? That's what happens. If I choose, though, to now walk outside the vault, like in Fallout, the video game, I am now in the wasteland. I am now separated from the protection of the walls of God's protection. And now all of the effects of the curse, of the radiation, whatever you want to call it, are now upon me. Does that make sense? That's what God is saying here, is if you choose to step outside of my mandates that I have caused the physics of this kingdom to be lived by, you are now under a curse that I did not cause, but is a result of sin. 
But God is working to save our world, but it touches us everywhere. It touches us physically, right? That's why we get sick. That's why we die. It touches us relationally. God never intended our relationships to break up. He never intended us to have divorce. He never intended us to have heartbreak, but that's a fall. That's a product of the, product of the curse. The same thing happens with our finances. We get resulting in greed and worry and stress and, 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 and bad decisions and gambling addictions. All of this stuff comes because of the curse of sin on the world. And we expect it, we, we experience it in so many ways, not because God is cursing people, but because we are wandering away from him and we're refusing to come under his blessing. And when we wander from God, we wander from his blessing. That's the simple truth here. So the call for us is the same as it was to the Israelites. Come back. God is saying, return to me. You can wander from me and you can choose to live under the effects of sin or you can come back home and you can live by my principles but see how it frees you and experience my blessing. You know, God's commands are not there to restrict us. They are not there to steal our joy. They're there to keep us in the boundaries of healthy living so that we can live free and to not take things on our shoulders that we're not expected to take. And parents, I think you guys get this concept, right? Imagine that you had a child who found your wallet and decided they were going to just take the money out of the wallet and go buy whatever they wanted with it. Like, there is no scenario to where you would be able to bless that child. Because when you know your kid is stealing from you, 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 you love them still. You're still the same father or mother who cares for his kids. But when your kid is stealing from you, you now have to, have to wrangle them and bring them back into the right spot. You can't bless them. I'm not going to go buy them something really nice because they're stealing money from me, right? This is the concept of what's happening here. And here's the ironic thing, though, is that if my kids came back to me and they said, Dad, I'm sorry. Like, I don't want to live like that anymore. I will bless them. I will love them. There is not a single thing in my life or in their life that I would not go to unimaginable lengths to provide for them whatever something they need. That's the irony of it, is that that's who we serve as a God, and yet we're kind of like reaching into his wallet and picking things out and using it for our own gain. And we lose the opportunity to bless our kids. God loses the opportunity to bless us, and we, we miss out on the opportunity to experience our Father taking care of us. And here's what I believe. When we defraud God, when we keep the tithe, for ourselves. We rob him the opportunity to bless us. And we rob ourselves the opportunity to experience his provision. And that's the purpose of this passage. God wants to take care of you. He wants to bless you. And he says, come back. Come back to the realization that everything that I've given you is not yours. It's mine. And I'm just saying, take it. Use it according to my principles. But then we say, oh, we forget that. And then we start using it for ourselves. And that's where the problem comes from. We start taking it and bringing it into our room. And God's over there saying, I can't bless you anymore because you're taking something that was mine. That's the concept that we see in this passage. All the tithes, give God what's first, then he will bless the rest. Verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. We need to finish here, but listen. The tithe is the remedy to our problem. Why? Why? I want to I just kind of blast through some of this here. The concept of this scripture is that it's the storehouse, okay? It says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Why is that significant? It's significant because, one, the, 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 the word storehouse in the original language is treasury. Now remember Jesus' words. What does he say? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. The treasury in the temple was the place where, where the wealth was stored, where all of the support system of the ministry of that temple would, 
was funded from, okay? So what Jesus, the parallel here is that where your treasure is, the treasury of your heart is where your focus is, is what's important to you. Jesus knew that. The second thing that's interesting about this word storehouse is that the storehouse, the the concept of it, was that in, in the temple and in the New Testament, the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, is the temple because it is the vehicle, the mechanism that God in heaven has chosen to save the world through. And so when he says bring the tithe into the treasury, bring it into the temple, in our modern day concept, that is us. This is who we are. We are the church that has a job to reach those who are lost, to go into our city and to rescue people, to help them connect with a God who loves them. And yes, you can give your money to other places. There are all sorts of charities. There are all sorts of of great things that you can give your money to. But God's command is bring the tithes to the storehouse so that I can do my work. That's what he's saying. He's saying, bring it here so that my work can be done, so that your neighbor, so that your mom, so that your sister, so that all those in Madagascar will hear the hope and life-giving name of Jesus Christ. He says to bring it here. It's interesting because money often shows us what we're tempted to worship other than God. And when we place our treasure into other things, it begins to tell us where our heart really is. Remember I said in the beginning, the reason that we are talking about money today is because it I think delineates whether God is first in our hearts or not, first in our lives or not. I recognize fully that this is an incredibly challenging word. I want to finish with this. On one side, we have all the resources in the world, everything, all that God owns, every dollar, every cent, every car, every machine, every factory, everything that's his. And on this side, we have every single need, all the broken, the hurting in Pittsburgh and around the world, those who are lonely, those who are lost, the drug addicted, the hungry, all of those people are over here. What's in the middle? You and I. And God always always chooses to use his people to partner with him for his purposes. Always. All throughout scripture. And that's what he's saying to us today. How do we do that? How do we partner with him? Bring your tithe to the storehouse. It's 10%. It's what it says. Beauty is that it's not an amount. It's a percentage. It is anybody can play. That's what I love about this is that everybody plays. It's not like, oh, well, you have to pay your dues, which is $7,000 a year. It's not like that. Whether you make $300,000 a year or you make $5,000 a year, your percentage is based upon your income. That's it. God says there is no reason that anyone can't participate. If you put me first, you're in. That's what he's saying. He says, take, I will take care of you. Would you just begin to trust me? I want to read the rest of verse 10, and we're going to finish. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. And if you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. I want to close with this. You guys all want to stand up with me. Tithe is a test. And it's the only place in all of scripture that God says you can test me. Most of the time, he says, don't test me, right? Like a parent, right? It's like, don't test me. Don't push my buttons, right? 
But in this case, he says, I understand that this situation is probably one that's going to be so hard for you. I know that he's going to be preaching this message on a Sunday morning in June in 2017 where, where our economy and our finances is, are tight, where we live in a society where we think that everything we have is ours and we don't, and all of this stuff. He knew when he was writing this down that we would be here today talking about this. And he says, test me. What do you have to lose? You have a God who up in heaven says, I do not change. I am the same. And if you will just put me first, if you will, will you get your paycheck and you will say, I am planning to put God first. And you tithe off of that. This is not something that is a prosperity gospel. This is not like, I don't believe that it's tit for tat. I don't believe that you'll become financially blessed because you give what I do believe is that when we step under the blessing of God, the favor of God, the principles, when we live our lives in obedience to his word, that we find blessing that's greater than any money could ever give. And I have lived that principle. And there are others in our church who live that principle out. They will tell you story after story of how God has provided in small ways and in big ways, financially and in relationships. When you just, when you just do what God says to do, he takes care of us. It is a test of both our faith and a test of God's faithfulness. Let's finish with Proverbs 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part, or first part, as it says in other translations, of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that you gave us life. I'm thankful that our Father in heaven was generous and gave his first, and gave his only son. Thank you that, he, that you gave everything for us. I pray that you would help us to live like you with the heart you did for other people, that we would see our Father in heaven as a God who loves us, that we would realize that so much of the pain that we live in life is because we just take so much pressure on our own shoulders that wasn't ours in the first place. I pray that you will help this word to sit tightly, deeply in our hearts today. That as we go throughout this week, that we would not uh, allow defensiveness or, or, you know, cynicism or jaded thoughts to pop up in our heads. But instead, let's talk about it honestly with each other. Let's search your scriptures and let's see what you say. I pray for grace with each other. And I thank you for your life and your goodness in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, just real quickly, our service hosts come forward. We're going to finish our service by worshiping God with our finances today. Um, basket's going to come by in just a second, and you can just give. Um, again, like I said earlier today, if this is your first time with us or you're not a part of our family, like our gift to you is the service. So we give here because we believe in what God is doing. We want to be a part of that. So um, let me pray, and our basket's going to come by, and I'm just going to pray to close this out. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for your heart and your life for us. I pray that every person who gives today, whether it's through uh, money in a basket or online, that you would, you would take it and that it would just uh, it would grow to a place of where other people would be challenged to give, uh, not because of obligation, but because we want to honor you. We thank you for your life and for your hope and ask that you would bless us and take care of us and show yourself as the unchanging, faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.